This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. I regret to inform you, you're on Chapel Probation, a podcast that takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities. And I'm your host, Scott Okamoto. Greetings, reprobates. Now, one of the topics we've been dancing around here on Chapel Probation is purity culture. We've talked about it a little, and some guests have referenced it as part of both their deconstruction and indoctrination. But today, we have an actual expert in purity culture, Dr. Sarah Mosliner. She's here to talk about her time at Calvin College and how her experiences contributed to her perspective in her field of research. In short, there were some good experiences, but man, there were some horrible ones too. So back in the day, young Sarah Mosliner, who is now a foremost researcher on purity culture and the harms it does on everyone, well, back then she was on the front lines of both the pro-life and the abstinence-only culture wars. And as you'll hear, she went from purity culture warrior to purity culture researcher and critic. Yeah, pretty badass. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Mosliner. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am, I guess by day, um, a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy, Anthropology, and Religion at Central Michigan University. Um, And I am also someone who has studied evangelical purity culture for far too long, Um, I guess about 15 years now. And um, so, yeah, that's me. Do people ever ask if this is like a sexy thing to study um, purity culture? Is it fun or is it depressing? That's a good question. And I guess it's, you know, I'm just thinking through, there've been so many moments where it's been different. It's, it's been different things. Um, And what's, I mean, one of the things, so the first book that came out on purity culture was actually called Making Chastity Sexy um, by Christine Gardner. And that was her argument that like, you know, they're using sex to sell abstinence. And so she's a professor, she was at the time a professor at Wheaton College. Um, I believe she's at Gordon now. So, um, so yes, I mean, for me, it was definitely, I, I developed some oppositional defiance disorder around it as a grad student studying it because at the same time I first started you know uh looking into it I was also studying Augustine and writing about you know what Augustine said on virginity and all this stuff so that definitely had an impact and um and when I you know when I worked on my dissertation which I guess took about two three years Um, you know, there, there was no dissent around it. And so I was really just interested in finding out kind of what is this all about as a, as a religious practice and interested in sort of adolescent spirituality. And so I interviewed college students at 
um, places you would recognize, um, but I can't disclose, um, right. and uh, about their experiences. And, um, and so there wasn't... Um, there wasn't the level of dissent and frankly trauma that there is today around it. I was really curious. And of course, because of working through my own stuff, which I couldn't really deal with, it was much easier to kind of make it all into sort of a brain puzzle (laughs) instead of dealing with my own stuff. Um, so, so yeah, it's, I definitely, you know, and I still get things from people that are just absolutely usually like, you know, jokes. Um, so I, there is a lot of mirth involved and especially in the two thousands, you know, when I was working on my dissertation was the sort of infamous VMA awards with the Jonas brothers and Russell Brandt. If you remember that, how he made fun of the Jonas brothers for wearing their purity Uh. rings. And then, um, uh, Jordan Sparks, who was, uh, a, uh, winner of, um, uh, American Idol came out um, to do a presentation with John Legend, and she interrupted it to say, "Well, I wear a purity ring because not everyone wants to be a slut, right?" So that was happening while I was working on my dissertation, and so like the cultural saturation was right there, and um, and so it was really interesting to sort of watch that that happen and just sort of see like. This is, you know, this has gone from being sort of a, a part of my personal experience to being something that's being debated in popular yeah. culture. It's in the mainstream, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so yeah. I, I started reading your book, uh, Virgin Nation, Sexual Purity <laughs> in American Adolescence, and it's fascinating. Um, and we'll get to that. But let's let's go back since this is chapel probation. <laughs> yeah. Please, um, <laughs> when you graduated high school, I assume you were a good Christian kid. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, do I have that right? And yeah. Then you you go to. Yeah. So I went to Calvin College um, for my undergrad, which for me was actually, I was sort of breaking out of a mold because I grew up in Western Pennsylvania and my tiny Christian high school, um, was a feeder school for Geneva college where my dad taught. Um, so a reformed Presbyterian school. And so going to Calvin was like, I'm leaving the state. I'm going to a place that's like five times as big, you know, so 1,000 to 5,000. Um, you're breaking out. Yes. Yes. So for me, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It was my, it was my breaking bad was going to go into Calvin and, um, Yes. So that is where I went. Yeah. So, and right. To speak to sort of me as a high school student, um, when I was a senior in high school, well, not only did I for four years kind of go to the March for Life, right? My school organized oh, a trip yeah. my senior year. I was in charge of organizing that trip. Um, and, and I, I won awards for like being a good Christian um, from my school and church camp. And that's a whole thing. Um, 
But like, what would what was like the name of one of the awards? One of the awards, Just Best Christian Kid. Or? Yeah. So the school <clears throat> one was the Servant Leadership Award. Okay, Servant Leadership. And yeah. I got that because of leading of organizing the trip to the March for Life, um, and the ch- the church camp one was I'm third, Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And so this was like. So it's- yeah. It's like winning a third place trophy, right. uh, but but it's really first place. <laughs> yeah. So um. So this was the model. So this is some Christian cred, uh, Sarah. This is. I, know. I you know throughout this podcast, know. you know, I've bragged that I was a worship leader and led Bible study, and other people have done other things, and, but this is. I was an yeah, award-winning an, Christian kid. Yeah, I know that. I, th- I need to come up with a whole new category of awards for this podcast. Cause right. That's right. I forgot you win awards. Well, now I I have to because now yeah. I'm all messed up over awards, right? Because <laughs> of this and uh-huh. right, getting awards for just I mean, basically, I got awards for being obedient. You know, doing what was expected yeah. of me. And so, yeah. but now I get, like, especially when it comes to teaching awards, like, because right now yeah. we're in the season where people get teaching awards. And I just can't, like, I get completely irrational around them because I'm so, I was just so socialized into, like, working towards them and getting them. And it's, yeah. anyway, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but the other thing I did was... I wrote a letter to the editor of my local paper, the Beaver County Times, when I was in high school. Um, and I was uh, in um, opposing uh, sex education that didn't include teaching about abstinence. And it's really so here's how much cognitive dissonance I had when I was working on my dissertation. I had no memory of it. Had no, I mean, I, it was back, but I couldn't. And so after my book came out in 2015, I was like, I wonder if that's online anywhere. And so I Googled it and I found it and I read it. And I was like, I didn't even know I knew the phrase abstinence only education in high school, but I did. And, and I, I sort of made this, I mean, um, Oh, shoot. I should read it to you. It's just like, it's very like, well, you know, well, we aren't doing, you know, I'm not doing this because I'm a Christian. And, and so, you know, students, you know, you expect that students are having sex and we're not. And, you know, so at the end, the last line of it was think about it. (laughs) A little stinger at the end there. Yeah, I know. I know. But they, um, but fortunately, I don't remember. I do remember one of my teachers coming up to me and saying, you know, that was a really good letter. But then it occurred to me, like, did anyone else, like, I don't remember anyone else saying anything about it, um, which I'm glad, but I don't, yeah. Anyway, um, I am still a good letter writer. I am still like I actually did get some attention because I tried to write. Well, I did. I wrote a letter. Um, to uh, drafted a letter opposing Betsy DeVos's, mm. um, uh, not election, but appointment as appointment Secretary the- of Education, because she right. is also a Calvin grad. And so I thought, if I can uh-huh. get other Calvin grads to sign it, 
that might carry yeah. some weight for some legislators and have people deliver it to their local Congress people. And so, um, so yeah, so, so like I was able, I'm like, yeah, it's something I'm still good so at. Yeah. It, you built up a skill that ended up being used in a different context. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So was Cal, so was there chapel? Was there, was there segregated dorms, all the whole thing? We had segregated dorms. So our dorms were, were, and they still are L-shaped, right? So you have the lobby that joins them and then you have the men's wing and the women's wing. Um, but what was interesting, so yeah, so we had, um, open you know we did have what were called open house hours on the weekends and then i think they introduced one on like wednesday night or something like that Ooh, yeah but it's just like especially that wednesday night it got super creepy because because we were so segregated um on wednesday nights like these sort of groups of guys would just sort of patrol the hall like walk through the halls you know and and it was like, what are you? And then one time a guy came by himself. I was, I can't, I was, I think I was in a friend's room and he knocked on the door and we opened the door and all he had on was a trench coat. And we just sort of stood there and then he flashed us. Now he was wearing boxer shorts and had a sock tucked into the waistband and it was hanging down between his legs. Classy. And I just, and here's, here's the thing, Scott, like at the time I like, I was like kind of shocked and like, but yeah. also like this dude's an idiot, Yep. but also did not see that in any way as inappropriate. Like it wasn't something I would say like, Oh, we need to go tell someone this happened. This shouldn't, this is, you know, this is sexual misconduct. <laughs> and, um, that was supposed to be seen as a practical joke, but, yeah. but so, and, and this is sort of how I grew up like, Oh, if it's a joke, then haha, it's just funny. And if you're not laughing, then you're the uptight one. Right. Right. And so, so living in the dorms was very much an experience, you know, this experience of dealing with, various form of different eruptions due to sexual repression um yeah. and of course i knew people who had their boyfriends sneaking in and they were having sex or, or what you know and you sort of knew who those people were and yeah. you know i had a i had a sweet mate who was um who was like in her 20s like she was an adult she was coming back and so she had a very different life she had like like when she came into my room and she's like do you have a corkscrew so we can open our wine and i was like <laughs> yeah. uh no <laughs> but um i should mention she was also canadian i always thought the canadians were very like open-minded and and yeah. cool you know but um but yeah, so so the so the dorm living was really stressful in that sense. Um, but the other thing that was happening is that right away I started hearing about people who um, were already like engaged, uh, you know, at the age of eighteen and nineteen. The ring by spring the crowd. Ring by spring. Well, and one of the things that was common in in Western Michigan and might. Um, was that at the age of 16, you get a, if you're dating someone, you get a promise ring. Mm. So you go from getting a promise ring to getting a pre-engagement ring. So the promise ring is an opal. 
the pre-engagement ring is a pearl and then you get a diamond and yeah yeah and so as i had never heard of the pre-engagement i'd heard of the i heard of the promise ring and then maybe it's a west coast thing we just jump straight to the uh to the, <laughs> to the diamond uh, yeah yeah uh, uh, <laughs> and so that so yeah i think that's when i started to become a feminist i'm i'm fairly certain <laughs> so something about that whole setup was you know offensive to you yeah. or, um problematic yeah yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, so I spent most of college being like, marriage is bullshit, you know, and I, <laughs> and of course, because what, where I had grown up, you know, how I had grown up was marriage meant that a woman dissolves her identity into her yep. male partner. Right. And so the idea of people wanting to do that at 18 or 19, I was like, you know, like you're just erasing yourself. And I was like, no, yeah. I have stuff I want to do. I have stuff I need to figure out that has nothing to do with whether or not I have a partner. And so that, um, you know, and so it actually took me a while to realize that there are people who have marriages that aren't designed like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. there are people who have um egalitarian marriages and of course you know with uh changes around same-sex marriage um but it yeah. took me a long time to be okay with and i am still someone who does not like weddings i don't <laughs> want to be married to someone because yeah. i still worry that like that's right um just because that was the expectation for so yeah yeah wow now when as a no, as a woman student and mm -hmm. as an academic, mm -hmm. there's there's still to this day this this I, this notion that you're not a full woman if you don't have a husband and children, mm -hmm. especially in the Christian setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're if you're going through this change of perspective like that, yeah, that you were already feeling uncomfortable in the dorms, but did that just make yeah. things exponentially worse for yeah. you socially and, and culturally? In some ways, yes, but I, I was very fortunate, you know, as a college student because I was studying uh, theater. And so I did theater all the time. Right. And so ah, I was theater a, kids are always expected to be a little, a little exactly, different. So. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, thank goodness. Right. I would not have. Yeah otherwise and so that and that was the place that helped me that allowed me to push boundaries that allowed me to ask questions um and but also i was terrified of dating you know because the mm. only way i understood it was as something that prepared you for marriage and i think that's something that really um kind of frustrates me now as an adult to say like you know for a lot of students this is a time of pushing boundaries in relationships, figuring out yeah. kind of, um, you know, who you are in a relationship, but I had no, yeah. no freedom around that. It was so, it had, it had been so internalized. And so I just, I just suffered a lot of really painful, unrequited crushes in, oh. in college. And, and it was never something that felt very, like real or possible. And then the one or two times it was possible, like I didn't even realize what was going on. Like apparently I went on dates and didn't realize they were dates. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> and it, so things like that, which, you know, so all the, um, 
you know, a lot of the confusion that, that I hear, you know, people who I've interviewed who've grown, come, grown up out of purity culture, like express, right. And as everyone does, um, and also with people who married their person, you know, in college and then got divorced and are like, yep. I have no idea, you know, so there's a, so, and I'm trying to figure out if that is, you know, what of that is unique to those of us who came out of purity culture, right? And what is just sort yeah. of a human experience? I mean, human sexuality is is overwhelming and exciting yeah. and scary. Complex. And yeah. Complex, right? It, it means all these things. But when you're told it's only one thing, you don't have anything else to draw from in terms of yeah. making decisions about, well, what kind of experiences do I want to have, right. right? In terms of just getting to know myself, getting to know who I want to be in the world, who I want to share my life with. Um, and I would just had none of those, those resources. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the sexual harassment in the form of jokes, quote unquote, remain a hallmark of life in evangelical schools. I mean, it happens at every school, but something about patriarchal communities like at evangelical schools kind of encourage this behavior. So you're about to hear something else. All these Christian schools don't want you to know. The rigorous rules and oppressive fundamentalism can actually drive underground, creative, and revolutionary movements. I talk about some of these in my book, with the BIPOC students revolting and forcing actual change at APU. But the arts actually thrive in oppressive spaces like APU, and in this case Calvin, despite the school's best efforts to control them. It also creates preeminent scholars and writers like Dr. Sarah Mosliner. But it does come at a cost. Then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season and she endures perhaps being smacked one night and then she seeks help from the church. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus <laughs> and by God's grace it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. There's nothing holy about writing discrimination into the law and I am tired of communities of faith being weaponized because the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I'm tired of it. Hi, I'm Nate, producer and co-host on the Full Mutuality podcast. Let's talk about inequality. It's everywhere. Whether it's rooted in race, gender, ability, or sexuality, there's bound to be an imbalance in power, influence, representation, and access. On our show, we want to explore areas of religion, culture, and society where justice is needed in order to bring about true mutuality. I hope you'll join us for some enlightening, fun, and at times uncomfortable conversations as we envision a world where everyone can live free from systems and structures that keep us from being truly equal. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, fullmutuality.com, to find a list of all the platforms we're available on. Subscribe today, and we'll see you on the Full Mutuality Podcast. So, and I want to get into all, all those things you just brought up, because your book really um, made me think 
a lot about my own observations of like, today's <laughs> culture because you talk about like the 19th century and yeah. um, early 20th century a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But so while you're at Calvin, like, are you sitting in chapel just stewing and, and like disagreeing with the chapel speakers? Are you sitting in class and having your mind expanded about like what the Bible actually says mm-hmm. about things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we, so mm. the one thing at Calvin that I appreciated is that we, um, we weren't required to go to chapel. So oh. yeah, yeah. Um, but the, right, you just lost some cred, Christian cred points. I know. I know. We weren't so required. I'm one, yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> but we had professors who were Calvin students back when it was, and talked about like all the because what they used to do. So, like in the 70s, when it was required, I don't know when they got rid of the requirement, but they would have it in um, this this large auditorium, and they would take attendance by like you'd have an assigned seat. And they take attendance by taking a photo, right? And so they could see then Whoa. who wasn't there. So I guess, you know, I had a professor uh, tell us once that people would actually make dummies of themselves to put in their seats <laughs> and stuff like that. And so, um, so right. So, I mean, there is this, uh, you know, there is this sense of like, hey, rules are made to be broken, mm-hmm. you know, kind of sense of humor at Calvin for some people, which, um, which I appreciated. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, like, so I took, um, I remember taking, I think, Old Testament Hebrew Bible and learning things like, you know, oh, the book of Jonah, you know, was a story. It didn't actually happen. And I was, and I heard that and I was like, actually, that makes sense, you know? And I was like, okay, but I, you know, um, I did not, I had to take two classes in, in theology, religion. I can't, I think it's a department of theology and I didn't want to take my second one like for a really long time. Um, Mm. And, uh, and so I just, I didn't want to study religion. I was really, um, and the thing at Calvin at the time, what I observed was there was sort of a a division. There were people who were really, really evangelical, right? These were the chapel kids. These were the really serious, like, I want to go into ministry, right? I love Jesus. And then there were the serious theological philosophical types, um, which Calvin is really good at producing. And of course, I was like with the artsy kids, um, some of whom, I mean, so, I mean, here's some credential and, and you may know this, but like one of the most famous graduates of Calvin College um, is uh, Paul Schrader, who uh, did the film, The Last Temptation of Christ and uh, Taxi uh, uh, Taxi or Taxi Driver um, and right and so on and so yeah. forth. And so we've had some pretty <clears> – <throat> There's sort of a, um, as someone has said, you know, that there's so much in West Michigan, there's so much sort of cultural control and what I would call a sort of theological uh, respectability politics that Mm. it actually creates sort of this underbelly of artists who do amazing things. Um, And that is, and so I was, so I, you know, so I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of the world I was in. Um, But yeah, but I, I did not want to study religion or really think about it. I was, you know, and I was, 
I saw people when they're singing their Jesus songs and I, because I grew up Presbyterian singing hymns. And so all the sort of stuff that we would now associate with kind of mainstream evangelicalism, I was like, Oh, what is this? You know, and um, and so I just didn't have have a place to kind of fit in. There wasn't like a, so it wasn't really a time in terms of, you know, traditional spiritual development, but massive intellectual and artistic development, which, you know, which so it was really just about sort of, sort of really pushing quickly, you know, across boundaries. I mean, but, and I did, I became a very committed feminist, because I figured out what that meant. And, and I think came to, you know, I, it wasn't until college that I first learned um, what sort of the realities of sexual assaults of, you know, and, and part of that was because of, what some professors were doing with students and, you know, and harassment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, um, I also, um, the other thing that happens, let me, I don't want to get too far away from your question, but I do want to tell another story, but, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was just all about sort of grappling with, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, misogyny, right? Even though I didn't have the language for that at the time, yeah. I didn't know what sexual assault was. I didn't know what sexual misconduct was. And I was still a good Christian kid, meaning I was supposed to be nice, especially to men who were super awkward and mm. didn't understand boundaries. And so I met one of those people when I was working on a play um, my junior year, and he was really like really off-putting and for some reason that made me feel uh like sympathy for him and i needed to befriend him and and so we were working on a play in a very short amount of time and i was very stressed out because i wanted to do a really good job and you know i was doing new things i was working on props and building props and working backstage and all this was in like the span of four weeks was and so the intensity was pretty high and then um this this student kind of is just sort of sitting around like looking at me and i finally just i said you know you i said we have a lot of work to do so if you could find something to do that'd be great and he said i'd rather just sit here and watch you and like i've never I never um, experienced, I should say, I had experienced things like that before, um, but not someone who was sitting two feet away from me. And all I could do was turn to him and say, I'd rather you not. Right? Like I didn't know to get up and go to a professor, go get security and say, this dude is needs to be removed from my presence right was he part of like the production even Mm -hmm. or was he just hanging out yeah yeah he he was a student you know it was a class where we were putting on a play and he had responsibilities and okay and then like you know I, i was and then as the play is in production like i'm running around doing all the things i need to do and he would just follow me around following me into oh, rooms where there was only one way to get out um oh. and then he would like leave me notes and 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 stuff like that and it was uh yeah yeah and, and it was just 
the biggest mind fuck I've ever experienced. And I had no idea what stalking was. Um, and I knew, yeah. and I, and I didn't see it as I was like, um, and I remember sitting in my professor's office who, who had directed the play we were working on. And she said, you know, Sarah, I'm on a committee, um, that, that addresses sexual assault. So if there's something that's happening, you can tell me, but in my, she noticed, yeah. The dude was following you around. Yeah. She, I don't know if she noticed him, but she noticed I wasn't well. And I don't oh. remember what I said to her, but in my mind, he didn't touch me. Right. He was just a creepy guy. It was my job to be kind to him regardless yeah. because he somehow didn't have some kind of social whatever. And so I didn't say anything to her. I said, you know, whatever. Right. And yeah. so this is, um, yeah. And and so this is now, you know, as a professor of religion, I should say, um, yeah. who has students, you know, I have students come to me and tell me about being sexually assaulted and the kind of help yeah. they need and trying to get, you know, I once had a student, we had to help um, make sure like her rapist just got out of prison and we had to, you know, file some paperwork so he could be allowed on campus, right? So these are this is part of my job is dealing with this. And, um, and I just think about how, like, do my students even know that? Do, do my students even have the words to describe what's happening to them that they know it's okay to say this is wrong? Um, yeah. Because I didn't, you know, and, um, and I was really, really fortunate, but it's, you know, and I can only make sense of this now that I've studied purity culture for so long and the silence that we learn, right? Because we only learn one narrative about what sex is, right? Yeah. And if something doesn't, you know, and so everything has to fit into that narrative and, um, and the, and also just what sex is. Um, yeah. Like I didn't see as what was happening to me as something that was sexually inappropriate when it was. Right, because we didn't have the the framework or the language. No, back then. you're no. talking about early, late nineties. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I graduated ninety six. <clears throat> yeah, the language of I talked to people my age, you know, our age. I think we're about the same age. All yeah, I'm I'm a little older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just like we didn't have the language of consent, like that was yeah. not, you know, and um. And to even to be able to even talk about it. So yeah, wow, this got really dark. <laughs> well, it's chapel probation. We go yes, everywhere. You know. um, yeah, yeah. So when when you read my book, chapter nine deals with a lot of mm -hmm. the things we're sort of talking about right now. Okay, good. It's the it's the sex chapter for better and for worse. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. Let's, I definitely want to check in with you after you read that because um, absolutely, I can't wait. You, you will, you will likely have some, th yeah, some yeah. thoughts. I have. Um, I told you that it looks like a Bible is just amazing. Yeah. Like yeah. the yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> hoping. Are there is are there is there a red letter edition? Yeah, <laughs> no, we we've joked about that and having like the 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 women's edition and the, and the teen edition and <laughs> we can have the true love weights um, edition. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> or the anti. -purity. I never read it. The anti purity yeah, Bible. So okay, before we get to your book, you go to, you go to grad school. Mm -hmm. So what? Mm -hmm. 
the contrast between that and then where'd you go to grad school? You said? So I um, actually, so I did a master's degree. I went to seminary. I went to mm-hmm. um, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, which is a bit of a misleading name because it's United Methodist. Um, and so it, the evangelical part refers to um, uh, like origins in the Brethren Church, um, okay. but which, but it's fully in the United Methodist Church, and so. So I got to study liberation theology. I studied feminist uh-huh. theology, womanist theology, black theology, and um, and uh, and got a real, you know, the things that so many evangelicals are now real saying, oh, this is different, you know. Yeah. So that was, yeah, and that was my plan because I. Um, when I finished at Calvin, I went to a place called the Oregon Extension, and I did a May term on women's studies and religion. And that's when I was like, oh, you can do these things together. You can do, like, feminist study of religion. And that, and I knew that was it, right? And so, um, so I knew I wanted to study feminist theology and, and was really kind of, I think, looking for a place to land. Um, you know, because so much had been, you know, and I was going so like, I never stopped going to church. Like when I, after college, I moved uh, to Chicago and I started going to a Mennonite church. But then I went and like, and I lived in like Mennonite community. I, um, I went to an Episcopalian church for a little while. And then uh, I decided to stop going to church altogether. And then I started seminary. And then when I was in seminary, I decided to go through the rites of Christian initiation and join the Catholic church. Um, wow. So it was like a whole, like, so I was trying to find a place. And um, as I was sort of studying theology and seeing like, there are so many different forms of Christianity that, and you know, that don't make me feel like I want to die. <laughs> and so, oh. um, so yeah. And I wrote my, um, I wrote my master's thesis on, um, on white racial identity 20 years ago and, um, and feminist theology and sort of looking at and trying to learn from womanist theologians, how to think about white racial identity and actually took, I had a great professor, um, who was just retired now as the president of Garrett, who taught a class on the psychology of whiteness and feminist theology. And mm-hmm. so, and so this is been part of my own sort of academic background and has become um, incredibly helpful when thinking about purity culture um, and especially white womanhood um, in this, you know, and in, in this time period um, that we are in right now. So, um, so yeah. And so, but then I, what I realized I really wanted to do was study the history of evangelicalism. And I really love the 19th century stuff. I want to study gender and sexuality and so that's um so after i finished my master's i went to claremont graduate university and um that's my backyard yep yep and uh and so my second year of classes i took a class on um uh practicing religion religious practice is what it was called with my advisor and taves um and i decided the religious practice i wanted to study that semester was uh people who chose to remain uh 
sexually abstinent until marriage. And that was the beginning of it. Um, and, and I had plans to, uh, do something different. I was really interested in Bibles as artifacts. Um, when I was in grad school was when the, uh, the Revolve Teen Bible came out. If you remember that, it looked like a fashion magazine and I was a little obsessed with it. <laughs> and I've actually published <laughs> on teen Bibles, um, which I, I think are oh, just, hey. it's just really fascinating stuff. And I like, I did some work around sort of Bibles as cultural artifacts. And I thought that was going to yeah. be my dissertation. And then my yeah. advisor said, I, I think this purity thing is something you got to do. And I was like, I can't do it. And this is, Uh. I'm going to tell you something super embarrassing um, that she said to me that just was so horrifying, but she was like, Oh, do you have to wait till you're married? (laughs) I was like, shut up. (laughs) Of course. Then I was like, well, damn it. I'm going to do it now. So, Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I wrote my dissertation um, called uh, "By God's Design?" question <laughs> mark mm. <laughs> on the faith-based what I call the faith-based abstinence movement. So that was how this all began. Nice. Yeah. So as we head to the end, I'll be giving my thoughts about AAPI Heritage Month, which is ending <laughs> this week and how my book fits within the movement for BIPOC visibility. But first, we learn about Dr. Mosliner's educational experiences that led her to write her first book, Virgin Nation, we talk a little bit about it, and her forthcoming book, After Purity, about which we will have a rather big announcement. So yeah, you lived in Southern California. I did for seven you years. Escaped. Yes, I met. It's a weird place. I, I, being a native here, yeah. I, I recognize it's it's an odd place. Yeah, I but. you know I think because I don't live there, and I know it's it's got much more difficult climate wise and uh, rental wise. Yeah, um, and uh, but I miss it all the time, and I try and get back to the oh. West Coast as much as possible because. I'm in Michigan and, you know, which feels like home, but I also, I love the Pacific Rim and yeah, All it right. always feels good. Well, but, but yeah, it was you interesting to always come hang yeah. at our house anytime. Yay. So. I will do <laughs> that. So where uh, actually I, we're in Pasadena. Oh, you're, oh, you are. Oh, so I, when I, so I worked for three years at archives bookstore. Do you know archives? So did that used to be, wait, Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, was that the like science fictiony kind of store? No, the that... science fictiony one was across the street. This was like a, okay, a that's what I'm picturing. Kind of a they a Christian bookstore. Um, they provide all the books for Fuller. And ah, so I, okay. I worked there for three years as a, and I thought, well, this will be interesting because <laughs> I'll be around evangelicals and I can hear, and it actually kind of helped me work through kind of my own my own like ah you know and go from being like the former evangelical who's deeply uncomfortable to being the scholar of evangelicalism who could sort of step back and say okay what are these people yeah. thinking about what are these people talking about see you were like diane fossey uh studying oh yeah 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 <laughs> gr- gorillas exactly uh, <laughs> gorillas in the stacks yeah but also yeah. 
it was the most sexist workplace I've ever worked. So I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. Heard about those bookstores. Yes. Um, yep. Yeah. So, um, ah, shit. but yeah, but, but I, I had a great time in grad school and I had friends who lived in Pasadena. So I would spend a lot of time there and I just, I'm, I, I miss it. I mean, I live in small town, Michigan now, which I think is, uh, I, I'm suited to, but yeah, I miss I do miss right, Southern well, California a lot, so. All right. Well, there's a spot at our kitchen island for you. Thank so. you. Oh, I love it. Thank you. All right. All right. So let's get into the, the meat of it now. Mm-hmm. So your your field of study, um, which is which – is, which I was thinking this as I was reading your book. Um, given your past where you lived this culture or a lot of it mm-hmm. – to, to turn around and be studying it and sort of unpacking yeah. the origins of purity culture, um, this fascination with virginity and adolescence mm. and developmental mm-hmm. uh, development of people's, mm-hmm. especially women's sexuality. Yeah. It gives you a unique, you know, you're not just an outsider coming in. You're, right. you're, you've lived a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Has that been, has that been helpful? Yeah. So I definitely, um, you know, when I started working on it in grad school, I was aware that I had sort of three different distinct vantage points throughout my life, right? I was deep in it. Um, and actually, and so, but then in college, you know, when I started to really question everything, um, oh, the other thing that happened in college was that I was, because I was a theater, I did theater tech, and there was a local church that was having an event and they needed someone to come. And I had a conversation with this overly excited youth pastor. I should have known at that point that it was not a good idea. But I, I took the job because it paid me a hundred bucks and I thought that was a huge amount of money. And I went to uh, Calvary Baptist Church in Grand Rapids for this event. And I didn't know what the event was, but it turned out to be a True Love Waits event. And that Mm. was my introduction to True Love Waits. Wow. Yes. Yes. And I, so I watched, you know, and, and the first part of it was just like a concert, right? They had three different bands. It was, you know everything and it was cool we're relatable exactly and this one was just for junior high school students but then they had a speaker come out i think and i write about her in my book um but her name is gianna jessen um her name still is gianna jessen but she's a um a pro-life activist but she came out and she's someone who uh presents as having a slight physical disability and um and she told the story of her mother um now she's telling this to 12 and 13 year olds in the contact right before they are about to be asked to make a uh, commitment to uh purity right and so like you know, you come down the aisle, you sign the card, and, or you can give oh your God. life to Jesus, yeah. right? So it's this, it's very much an altar call experience, right? There's yeah. no, so sort of this purity is being mapped onto the believer's journey, right? In this sort of seamless way. And, um, and so this, I'm watching all this, you know, at, at the age of 21, but she tells the story of her mother who at 15 got pregnant and uh, decided to terminate the pregnancy um, and have an abortion, but the abortion wasn't successful. 
and um, a nurse uh, rescued the baby and she was uh, and I think raised her and Gianna was that baby. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So when I saw that at 21, <laughs> my response, right. So for like five years prior, I'm writing a letter saying, you need to think about teaching abstinence education. Yeah. Five years right. later, I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. It was so, it, yeah, it it still does, right? Um, yeah, no, and so and that yeah. stayed with me for so long that when I got to you know actually being you know I knew I had all these questions. I'm like, I need to figure this out. And so, you know, when I had the chance to do it in grad school, I was like, all right, here we go. And um, and so yeah, so that was sort of where I first learned about. Well, no, because I did grow up with uh, Josh McDowell, right? So I knew all the wide yeah. weight stuff, knew people who had, yeah. you know, the, the shirts. And I was like, ooh, they have a shirt that says wide weight. That's so cool, you know? Um, <laughs> but then, you know, by the age of 21, I was just like, this is some manipulative fucked up shit. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, so then by the time I get to grad school, I'm I'm less sort of – dealing with sort i'm like the emotional stuff is pushed down really hard right right because um i'm like oh i'm learning to be a scholar right and that that made me feel it gave me a safe place to ask these questions and um right so i already had three different vantage points for going into it and and one of the things you learn when you study religion is this concept of the insider outsider dynamic right and um because and the thing is it's not a clear distinction all the time you know and so so for much of my career i've been an outsider a former evangelical who is now an outsider and you know we're a dime a dozen in academia and um but what's been really wild as i've started to study this exvangelical thing you may have heard of um heard of it and started to sort of read people like blake jastain and and see and and chrissy stroop and seeing how people are are defining it i was like oh shit this is me and suddenly i go from being an outsider to what i'm studying to being smack back in the middle of it and and so that's where i am right now Um, and I mean, and as you know, it's been this incredibly vital place to, uh, to meet people, to network, to, to be creative together, to, to build community. And, uh, and it just has, um, has added so much to even just my academic career, much less my ability to, you know, be a whole person, (laughs) you know, so it's, um, so yeah, so it's definitely something I think about a lot, you know, and because I'm, I'm trained to think about what is my relationship to the ideas I'm studying to the people I'm studying, how do I show up in the stories that I'm telling, because I do, even though, you know, I mean, uh, Virgination is a very typical historical monograph, right? It was written mm-hmm. with a scholar's voice. And, um, but also, I was trying to tell my own story 
in a way, yeah. right? Even though you don't yeah. see that as all at all, what I didn't realize that I was also telling a lot of other people's stories. And yeah. so when the book came out in 2015, and I just, at the time I wrote the book, I thought I didn't have an academic career because I had no job prospects. You can't make a living just adjuncting, which is what I was doing. So I was like yeah. applying to work at the food co-op. I was I was, um, I was planning on going back to school to train to be a mental health counselor and thought, you know, I'd want to do that kind of work. And, um, and so, but I was like, okay, if this is the only thing I have to show for getting a PhD. Okay. Like this is, this is the work I want to do that's important to me and it's going to give me a sense of having worked through something myself and also having accomplished something professionally. Um, and then, to have, and I think you understand this, right? To have sort of non-academics pay attention to the stuff mm -hmm. you write, how rare that is <laughs> to happen, right? Because you you expect it'll be read by people in your field and that's it. And, and, yeah. and maybe they'll assign it in classes and stuff like that. But I was getting, con I, you know, you know, early on, I was getting contacted by so many people and, and people who worked in, uh, mental health counseling as yeah, well saying hey we want to put your book on our shelf can you do you think this is a good idea what do you, you know and and um and even you know hearing from lgbtq folks who were like whoa this change you know helps me reframe everything and and that's when i really became convinced of the power of narrative and the power of historical honesty. Um, and I think we we're realizing now um, in a very broad way, how, how little access we have had to historical honesty um, yeah. and integrity in terms of talking about our, our collective and individual pasts. And, um, and so when I saw the response to that, I, you know, and this was before, right before sort of evangelicalism kicked off. And, yeah, um, right. and, and I knew I was like, okay. And so the thing is, I have a job where um, I get paid to teach. So I am not on a tenure in a tenure line, I'll never have tenure, which means I don't get time off to do research. And I right. knew that. Um, and I knew that, the, you know, there needs to be a follow up that actually interviews people who've grown up and out of purity culture. And I said, maybe someone else will come along to do that. At that time, I didn't really know anyone who was studying purity culture, which kind of makes me chuckle now. Um, but, and, um, and I didn't, um, and I also didn't, uh, yeah, I, I, I knew I would need resources to do it. And I said, yeah. okay, well, let's write some grants and, do the best I can. And if I don't get the grants, that'll tell me one thing. If I do get the grants, that'll tell me another. And I got a shit ton of grant money. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I, in fact, I was so, I got a little, uh, I got a little heady about it and realized and just sort of told my department, I was like, I'm going to buy my own sabbatical. And that's exactly what I did is I had, I bought oh, hell yeah. my own sabbatical. Um, but that is such a huge academic flex right it, there. That is a, <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But here's, but here's the thing. My academic, my sabbatical 
uh, year was 2020 and 2021. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so, Timing. Yes, yes. So in many ways, it was great. You know, like I, um, I had less teaching to do during the pandemic. Um, which during and that was the the hardest pandemic year, um, which was good. And I also didn't know would people want to talk at that time, like because I had. Right. Um, but uh, turns out people did, you know. And I did ended up doing in three years sixty five interviews with people, um, uh, you know, talking about their experiences in purity culture and um, and letting them define what that meant. Um, and what purity culture meant to them in some cases, you know, so, um, so yeah, so now to sort of have be the keeper of all these stories, have this really glorious archive of, um, of people's experiences. And then of course, since then, right, I mean, the articles, the research, the sort of first person narratives, you know, people writing entire books, um, I, I just talked to yeah. Linda Klein yesterday, um, who's oh. doing really well and, um, you know, and, and, uh, Diana Anderson's book, um, their book is, you know, another sort of one of the earliest. And so I've, so what I've been doing is sort of tracking the resistance, um, and seeing how people are talking about their experiences, I, and one of the things I never anticipated was, uh, was sexual abuse and yeah. yeah and which is really coming out now yes um, yes yeah and in fact i had a um and even when my book came out i had a i i'm uh friends now with uh stephanie crable who is the uh director of into account which is a survivor advocacy organization for people who have experienced sexual assault sexual abuse in uh religious communities and and um and her doctoral advisor was one of my uh calvin professors and um and he and so when she was and so my and i guess he gave her my book which um and she read it and her initial thought was the next thing this person's going to be studying is sexual assault and the next logical yeah. step. And I yeah. I did not see that. And then uh and then when Emily Joy's book came out, I was like, okay, here we got clear, right? Clear connection. Because I didn't wanna um because the thing about the topic, right, it's such a hot potato that in the wrong hands it can just be um you know, I think exploited in a way that's not appropriate. Yeah. So for example, I, when my, when Virgin Nation came out, um, uh, an excerpt of it was run on in salon.com and on Facebook, whoever runs their Facebook, like their, the caption they used was, well, this is child abuse. Right. And that was sort of like a subtitle. And, and I wrote to my editor right away and I said, this is not appropriate. Like, this is not the argument I make and I'm not, I don't have the evidence. I don't have right. to, to say this, right? Yeah. Um, it's a huge extrapolation of. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so what you wrote. Yeah. yeah. And people, you know, and a lot of people, you know, love to make Freudian jokes and, you know, and especially once you get you introduce the topic of the purity balls. Right. And sort of like, oh, these are incestuous and stuff. So there's a there's a way of talking about it that I find is not um, 
it's it's not accurate. Um, yeah. And because those are the lenses that society has yes. at, at their disposal, and they're not sophisticated and they're not right. well informed. Exactly. So that's all. It's the only way they can view this topic because it exactly. hasn't been explored. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it just doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't tell us anything. Um, but now like, yes, I, you know, I think we, we can, we can make direct connections between sexual abuse that children have experienced in the Southern Baptist church at the same time that the church is promoting true love weights. Right. And, um, and that contrast I saw in the first three, three or four chapters of your book, because you give this detailed history of this contrast between Men trying to control women's bodies and women's mm-hmm. sexualities, um, while trying to kind of having free reign of of their own mm-hmm. sexual expression. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's even some of the dudes like promoting like prostitution has like a as like a safety valve right. of of, right. their, of their sexuality mm-hmm. and. Um, but there's all this back and forth between like women are the keepers of of morality yes. and and chastity and all these things and and men are supposed to be the leaders, but they're second, they play second fiddle to that. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, yeah, what a, I just yeah. remember thinking like, and this is a time when not everyone's super literate too. So this mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. probably not a huge conversation. in as far as like the national consciousness, this is yeah. happening amongst the thought leaders right. Um, right. who are, who are leading the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. What a confusing time. But then everything <laughs> you wrote was like, I could see a direct application to the things I saw at Azusa Pacific or yeah. the things I saw in church growing yeah, up. It's yeah. like the legacy of all that confusion remains yeah. to this day. It's yeah. the same cycles of abuse and, mm-hmm. and misunderstanding of our bodies and our sexuality. Exactly. It's yeah. Wild. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I should, and I want to clarify that this was, you know, for the most part, it was white women. I mean, it was white women who were perceived yeah. as have as holding this virtue and being expected to, you know, uh, you know, represent this virtue um, to the. Um, and and one of the reasons we know this is because black women came along and said, "No, no, no, <laughs> this is yeah. for us too," right? Because yeah. it was being formed at a time when you know, black women were enslaved and that, right. So you have these different, you know, so these sexual stereotypes are being formed in a deeply racialized way. Right. And I think, um, you know, this is something that I think we, we know now, but also to think about that in terms of contemporary purity culture as being a deeply racialized uh, thing, which I don't think, um, we are just starting to talk about. Yeah. And I really appreciated you bringing that up because um, it's another area that doesn't get it talked about as, as much in the deconstruction spaces yeah. is it's starting to. And I think people yeah. like you and some of our people you, we both know are leading that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, and then you, it makes you realize it's all interconnected, you know, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the racial history, the gender history, yeah. the sexual history of the last couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's all tied together. It's yeah. All, yeah. Yeah. Connected. And it's, you know, and and it's because of, right, as I, because I call my book Virgin, Virgination, I mean, these were all things that 
were perceived to be necessary for the well-being of the nation, right? Yeah. In the 19th century, it's sort of a young nation that becomes very quickly economically and politically powerful because of slavery, slavery right? right? And then, um, and so that sort of becomes this formula, um, which, um, which we see get adopted in the 1970s um, by sort of the fundamentalist resurgence. And so all the gender stuff comes back, right? With the SBC takeover, you get rid of all the women in power. Um, and of course, we know that so much of that was about building a Republican voting block and especially Southern Republicans who were angry about having to desegregate yeah. their schools, right? right. So, so yeah. Yes. And, um, and so this is what we know. The other piece that I am trying to get more into in terms of um, is thinking about thinking more about Reagan and thinking about the um, uh, the pro-life movement, which, is I said, I, I was heavily involved with my parents were deeply involved with still you know this is sort of their uh brand of christianity in a sense <laughs> like even though they you yeah. know i think for a lot of people it, it, it is and um but thinking about how in the 80s when the pro-life movement you know was really kind of pumping up you also had this rhetoric around welfare and the welfare queen right, right? and the and the kind of people who were right um, having sex out of wedlock, having children out of wedlock and becoming a drain, you know, on resources, yep. becoming, you know, becoming too much. And, yep. um, and that's when we started to talk about, you know, not about, um, about welfare as an entitlement <laughs> as yeah. opposed to the things people need to survive. Right. And right. just sort of the racialization of poverty and welfare and that, well, you know, and I remember that, and I even, and this worked on my white imagination as a teenager. You know, I I went to an all white school, but I didn't live in an all white town um, mm. because I I went to the Christian school, um, right. and but I so I knew a lot of kids in in the public school, and in my mind, I perceived. Um, you know, the girls who got pregnant were either black or the fathers of the children were black. Um, which actually now that I think about, you know, once I stopped to think about it was not true. In fact, two of the boys I dated in junior high school became fathers by the time they graduated high school, white boys. Oof. Right. Yeah. But this is right. This is how the white like, imagination works. Yeah. And this is right. Like a version of the spotlight theory where you just, yeah. It, it confirms your bias exactly. so that you focus on that. Exactly. And that was sort of, you know, so I've been working on a piece. Actually, I, I think I wrote something in my sub stack called like how the pro-life movement made me a white Christian nationalist or something like that. But, but these are yeah. ideas I'm, I'm still, I'm still trying to think through because I think there's a lot more to say about. And, yeah. and so when they're, they finally figured out welfare reform stuff in 96, right, under Clinton, attached to yeah. it was funding for abstinence-only education. Right. Yeah. 
Oof. Yeah. Nicely done. You tied it all yeah. right back up there. That's uh <laughs> This is my brain, right? This is uh, this is why I yeah. love to do interviews. Uh and one cuz I love the sound of my own voice, but also <laughs> it it lets me it reminds me okay, my brain is working. These things do make sense. It is. It's firing on all cylinders. Yes. So. And can I just say we deserve credit for <clears throat> I don't think we made one sexual innuendo joke throughout this hour. We did not I'm so I feel <laughs> A like couple, I should apologize. A couple flashed in my mind, but I didn't. You. I just didn't go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, did you? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. There was, although Brad once, we were going to talk about Brad. So, I don't know if yeah, you remember okay, this, but let's talk about Brad, Brad made me talk about Tucker Carlson and testicles on his podcast. Oof. So yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Thank you very um, much for not doing that. Um, <laughs> we, we can. We still have a couple minutes for seeing me as, so, but but also, I mean, talk about low hanging fruit. Okay. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> yes, yes, but also, I mean, I need you know people need to be reminded that I'm much funnier than Brad. So I mean, that's that's yeah. yeah. So Clearly. that's. That's how it works, but also, but you know, and I have a brain, so that's, yeah, that's, I mean, Brad has a brain. He does have a brain. And yet I I assume he uses it to make the worst. Like, I feel like he's been banking dad jokes for like at least a decade so that when he became a dad, he just had like an arsenal. Now it's just flowing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just shameful. Yeah. I, I I don't have dad jokes because I say fuck too much and, and that that immediately cancels the dadness. I uh, got I got so. it right right yeah yeah. Um, That's good. Yeah, and yeah, I kind of yeah. have, a, I have a depraved weird mind. So um, I but I kind of yeah. love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I do too, but I have to like. I, I need the veneer of respectability in a lot of cases, yeah. especially if someone's sure. saying, here's a book you wrote. Then <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. crap. I got to be like, oh, serious and grown up. <laughs> well, that's what. So I wrote a book that has zero academic credibility and it's purely just, <laughs> it's purely just chunks so of people memoir want to and read it. snark. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's embarrassing because it's very personal and I feel like yeah. everyone's going to be looking at me funny now when they read it. Yeah. So, so I, so yeah, go. so we can talk more about that later, but that's what I've been, you know, um, I've been trying to write and send stuff out just for people to read and trying to be more work with different kinds of voice, right? Because the academic voice is yeah. so disembodied and that doesn't yeah. feel right for this next book. So how do I, you know, sort of talk in a way that is more, um, right. That is more embodied, which means it's more intimate and it's like, yeah. okay, you know, so. Well, you're starting um, a podcast and that helped me a lot develop good. The, the narrative <laughs> voice. So true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I'm, so build on that. I will. I will. Yeah. I think it'll be it'll be good. So it's my summer, my summer of writing and podcasting and Yeah, I'm going to help and, you. And trying to be, and trying to be interesting. <laughs> yes. Oh hell, you're interesting. Yeah. You 
you, oh, you're an interesting see. person and you study a fascinating f- <laughs> field of study that, um, you know, and, and, you know, academics can kill the fun of anything. And so oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> academics can make sex boring and, and yet it's not boring when you talk about it. It's, it's so I'm looking forward. Oh, to, good. To well, it. cause the first question you asked me was, you know, was study is studying sex sexy. And my first thought was, yeah. Oh, he's going to be so disappointed. <laughs> no, I knew. I kind of knew the answer already because yeah, I've been in, I've been in, I've been in the basement of the ivory tower yeah. at, at, at in Christian schools, mm-hmm, and so. Mm-hmm. So what was your yeah? What was yeah. your job at AP? I mean, I will know when I read the book. I'm sure, but I was an English professor. Oh, you were so, okay. Yeah. So you are an academic. What are you saying? I thought I don't you know were. when you come out of when you come out of evangelical schools. It's it's like a, there's an asterisk next mm. to academic. <laughs> so, but you <laughs> or it's ha- academic in quotes. Yeah. Do you it's have a PhD? A, I don't. Yeah. I just got hired to teach freshman writing, and oh. they didn't have any other non-white professors, so they kept pro- promoting. And I got good reviews. I'm got a good it. teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then they could because it's Southern California, they they couldn't hire anyone to to, to live in Southern California at their piddly. Uh, pay so yeah, yeah they they gave me this these positions that were open for like years yeah so yeah. i was an assistant professor for a few years and then they start, they demoted me when i got too involved with the underground um lgbtq yeah community. yeah right and then that was sort of the beginning of the end and i eventually quit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so i was a stay-at-home dad and mm-hmm. my my wife was the breadwinner, and mm-hmm. so now I'm trying to pay her back a little bit. Yeah, if I sell, yeah, I think if I sell like a couple hundred books, there you I, go. I think I can. You'll probably sell more than a couple here. hundred. I, I hear you have a good agent, so who knows how to sell books? Yeah, great publisher and agents, and yeah. So yeah, we'll That's see. Really good. Yeah. Well, can I? So speaking of, because we in fact have the same agents, who is also your publisher. Um, yeah. but I shout out to David Morris. Yes, shout out to David Morris. Um, and this is my first time uh saying this because I haven't put it out yet, but um he and I uh successfully uh uh got a contract for my second book. Hey and congrats. yes, so, so cool. I will be so this um book uh my second book um and i and i wanted to work with david because i didn't want my second book to be an academic book i wanted it to be a trade book um and it was hard like i got some really hard confusing rejections um yeah and then i got some they hard- all give different reasons huh yeah, yeah well, right right it's each one academic, has a different reason not academic yeah, it's not enough, an academic right? yeah, yeah i got yeah. all those was- yep and it was a, it was like, oh, and he's such, and he's so lovely, you know, and I could talk to yeah. him about just how challenging it was to think in terms of like, okay, what is my voice? You know, who is my yeah. audience? Um, and so who, who, what is the best house to work with? You know, who's going to really let me do what I need to do? And so then I got rejections from places I thought were a good fit. And then I got yeah. um, offers from places that I knew were a bad fit. And I was yeah. so, conv- I was like, no. Um, but then um, we submitted uh, the, uh, the proposal to Beacon Press. And we quickly had a conversation with them and, and I, and then I looked at their, you know, their list is just a list of like many of the books I have read over my academic career. And it just, I was like, this is it. 
this is the this is the home for this book and so just last week i signed a contract with them and i'm very excited yeah. so the the new book is currently called after purity how uh white christian america exploits exploits race sex and religion um Ooh. and and much of it yes. will be about the interviews i've done um so if anyone's listening if you did an interview with me like you may show up in the book um and and yeah and so just thinking about all i mean there's so much to kind of sort through in terms of you know thinking about um the aftermath of purity culture thinking about um you know and there've been times when i'm like is there anything more to say you know because there've been so many great books that have come out but um you know but i um but also talking more about uh, issues of sexual assaults um, and how people have become more converse in thinking about both sexual trauma and religious trauma um, and just the exponential growth of people having these conversations and forming collectives and, um, and having podcasts. And I mean, has just been amazing to watch that grow. Um, And, you know, I was, I was, uh, um, you know, I think most of the people sort of the height of it was in the nineties and two thousands when I was, I had was sort of out of evangelicalism by that time. So most of the people were sort of a decade younger than me, um, that I've interviewed though, not, though not exclusively. So, so I'm just really excited to get those stories out and to sort of, um, increase our understanding of sexual purity so that people actually will start to see it as part of the problem of sexual abuse in the churches and and and, um but it's uh so yeah so i'm 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 excited and i i think i you know i go through being excited and feeling completely paralyzed um oh yeah i know that feeling uh, but yes yep yeah so um but yeah, so I have, you know, I have a, you know, a good, I, I, I wrote a good portion of it, um, by be, as I was working on the proposal, um, but there are still so many things, you know, that could happen. And I still, you know, we still have not, you know, still working through things like, uh, the Atlanta shooting, right? Um, yeah. and now with, um, with what happened yeah. in Nashville, with the shooting in Nashville, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I am just seeing that, right, this is, you know, what I've learned in the last sort of five to seven years since my first book came out is like, this is not about teenagers, horny teenagers in a backseat, right? This is about life and death, unfortunately. And it's really, um, it's just really astounding. So sometimes I feel overwhelmed by the weight of it, for sure. I'm sure because... Where do you where do you draw the line of because yeah. like Atlanta and Nashville intersect so many different issues. I know, I know. Each one of which could be a book. Yeah, um, absolutely. So yeah, that's that will be the challenge. Yeah, I mean. yeah. <clears throat> but I can't wait to read it. I mean, that's Thanks. that's chills down my spine when you said the title. That's that's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I hope it's yeah. and I hope you know I had there were people who complained about Virgin Nation because it was they're like this is boring. Or I'm like, all right, <laughs> but, oh. but this one will not be boring. <laughs> I, I I know I 
I didn't think it was boring so <laughs> far. I I, th- I found it fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was writing, writing. I was I was at the airport reading, and I was writing notes on my oh. phone about <laughs> about it. Great, and great, it was great. like, I got to circle back to this and. So, thank you. Oh, the dog in the same. This is, something? yeah, this dog is Gibson. <clears throat> he would like to say hello. He would like his human back now. Hey. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what are you just talking into your computer? Exactly. He does not like it. Some Every once in a while, he, like, he'll get behind me and just, like, stare <laughs> into the computer <laughs> over my shoulder. And that's what I so, always. Anyway, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I really yeah. appreciate you coming on Chapel Probation, and this is all the, like fascinating yeah. stuff. And I'm so glad you're doing the work that you do because, you know, as I as we as I sort of go through this third season, all the different topics and all yeah. the different experts, we're all we're all pulling on the same side yeah. of the rope. To, Absolutely, to fight against uh, white nationalism, mm-hmm. patriarchy, mm-hmm. and purity culture. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) But yeah, thanks. I've, yeah, I've loved your podcast. I think it's, it's been great to sort of hear people's stories and, and, um, and I, you know, I have, you know, Calvin was one of those places where we would actually make fun of how conservative other places were. Um, Oh, hey. You know, all right. Yeah. Like, you know, because we didn't have to sign like a pledge, like you had to places like Wheaton and and Mm, stuff like that. And, Yes, yeah. yes, cool. exactly. So, all right. So, anyway, well, thanks I, for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to working with you more. I'm sure I will have yep. lots of there questions. There will be more. Yes. <laughs> there will be more Scott and Sarah collaboration. <laughs> yep. Look out, world. <laughs> Big thanks to Sarah Mosliner. Dr. Sarah Mosliner, for sharing her story and her perspectives of purity culture and how it's tied to everything of consequence in Christian culture. From race to socioeconomic issues, purity culture is part of the big Christian machine that's kind of screwing up the world. And Dr. Mosliner is there to point it out with her research and her voice. Links to her first book will be in the show notes, and be on the lookout for a podcast she's working on this summer, and her book, which will be coming out probably next year. So instead of music or comedy this week, I wanted to acknowledge that this episode comes out at the end of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. In the run-up to this month, I considered having... AAPI guests, but then I remembered, um, I'm an AAPI person. So I'm an Asian American. Yeah. So every episode this month has been a celebration of AAPI Heritage Month, whether I, whether I pointed it out or not. And that said, you may be wondering how you can support AAPI folks like me. And I got you. You can buy my book if you haven't already. It's called The Asian American Apostate, Losing Religion, and Finding Myself at an Evangelical University. It's been officially endorsed by, and here I'm going to read a list. It's been officially endorsed by the deconstruction luminaries like Joe Lumen, Chrissy Stroop, Blake Chastain, Josie Jimenez, Megan Crozier, and Brad Onishi. And it's been endorsed by Asian American heroes like Tracy Kato Kiriyama, Jenny Yang, Naomi Ko, Taz Ahmed, Sarah Kuhn, 
David Mira, who's one of my heroes, Naomi Hirahara, actually they're all my heroes, and Keiko Agana. Yeah, that Keiko Agana. I even got a bona fide professor of philosophy, Dr. Craig Boyd. Not to be confused with Greg Boyd. Craig, Craig Boyd. All this to say, it's really hard to sell books as a not famous Asian American man. But I so appreciate all of you who have already bought the book. And if just eight more of you could leave a review on Amazon, and yeah, sorry, but that's the game, I'll get a boost in that mysterious algorithm. Algorithm. In a sad capitalistic way, getting to 15 reviews will make my voice a little louder. Maybe a lot louder. Okay, commercial over. I realize I'm preaching to the metaphorical choir here because if you are listening to my voice right now, which which you are, you already see and hear me as a human being with something to say. I know that sounds weird to you, but most of this country sees my face or reads my name and immediately says, nope, pass, not interested, if they respond at all. So the fact that so many of you listen to chapel probation means, means the world to me. You are all helping to elevate AAPI voices. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there aren't many AAPI men writing nonfiction right now. Can you think of another AAPI man with a book? I can think of a couple because I'm in that community, but I'm pretty sure Brad Onishi and I are the only AAPI authors in the deconstruction world right now. And we need more of us. We need more black authors, more brown authors, more queer authors, and yes, more enlightened white authors. Because together, we can elevate each other and our stories, all of our stories. So. As AAPI Heritage Month comes to a close, I want you to know that I remind myself every month, not just this month, every month, to value myself and value others. Not just the popular folks, but all people with an identity to explore and a story to tell. We'll be back next week with another episode of Chapel Probation. Thanks for listening.